Our church in California, where my family and I lived before we moved here about eight years ago, had a family in it that had gone through quite a crisis with their youngest child. Their youngest child, a daughter, was born with not just severe issues with several of her organs, but severe issue with her heart, so much so that even when she was immediately born, there was not ox- enough oxygen that went to her brain. Before she was 18 months old, she had three major heart surgeries, and they felt like they were residents at the Ronald Reagan Medical Center, part of UCLA, which is a very good hospital in Southern California, where they were regularly located as they were caring for their daughter. This was before we knew them. I didn't know the family at this stage, but I heard the story about their ministry from the doctor that worked with them, and he shared this testimony at their daughter's funeral when she was just 13 years old. He had become a a, a newer doctor to this hospital. He had finished his residency. And when he came in, this young family and their young daughter had already been there for a couple years. And he told the story about how he was working on this floor with all these children. He even described it as a situation where it's not fun to be a doctor with sick kids. Somebody's old and they've lived a full life, you understand that death is coming. But when they're little and they're not running and playing and giggling and laughing, it's very dark. He even described that statistically 80 to 90% of those families separate and divorce because of all the stress that happens in such situations. But he told the story about working his rounds on this floor and then he comes to room 204. And he walked into room 204, and there was little Kaylee, three years old. All these heart surgeries, all these medical issues. There was mom and dad. There was older brother. He was four years older. And he said, immediately when I walked in the room, I got a different feel. He said, even at one point as I'm on the computer typing and, and doing the things that I'm supposed to do, logging in and about to do a brief evaluation, little seven-year-old brother says, as his sister's getting tired and soon to go to sleep, can we, can we sing to Kaylee? So dad lifts seven-year-old brother over the edge of this crib wall so he could lay next to his sister and with interlocking hands holds his sister's hands and begins to sing. What happened to be that mom and dad were quite talented and longtime Christians and knew these songs, and the three of them beautifully began to sing. The doctor was overwhelmed with emotion. He said, I could barely contain myself standing there. I finished what I was supposed to do as quickly as I could. I left. He goes, I stood in the hallway. I put my head against the wall, and I was thinking, what did I just see? Because I would go from room to room and see yelling and fighting, and I go to a room with just as serious of issues, and I taste hope. He was so bothered, or shaken by what he saw, that when he finished, he drove all the way from UCLA Hospital to Pasadena, which in Southern California with traffic is not a small trip. He drove to the old church he used to go to, a Presbyterian church, got there at 507 Office closed at five, but he caught the pastor walking to his car behind the building. Ran up to his pastor, tears in his eyes, says, we got to talk. They walked back into the church, and he just told the story of how this pastor explained 
from Scripture what he had just tasted in room 204. And he heard for the first time and understood for the first time the gospel. And he claims that at that moment he became a believer in Jesus Christ through the testimony of a mom and a dad who were broken over their little girl and a brother who was sad for his little sister. What is that kind of hope? What was happening in room 204? That's a question he asked and the topic I want to address today. What was happening in room 204 was the fruit of Easter. That maybe not felt like it. There were still wires and tubes. There was still a failing heart that just in a matter of years would ultimately stop in this little girl's body. She'd never have the life that any parent would want for their kids. Her dad would never walk her down the aisle. She passed away at 13. In fact, that was 10 years beyond what the doctors thought she would live in her first year. She wouldn't be there for her brother's high school graduation. She wouldn't see a lot of things that life was supposed to help her see. In fact, for the rest of her life, she basically never was able to go beyond being a toddler in mental capabilities. But in room 204, there was something different, and this doctor tasted it. See, Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore it celebrates the turning point of God's saving activity in the world. As Vera rightly explained a few moments ago to you kids, all of us need to hear on Easter morning this big picture of what God is doing and what this day celebrates. See, God has always loved the world. He's always pursued his people. And that didn't just begin at the life of Jesus. That actually begins, if you look at the whole biblical story, it begins in Genesis. The ministry of God started the moment Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. It was God, not hiding behind the bush, but pursuing the people behind it. It was always God who would pursue humanity. Both Old and New Testaments show God's pursuit of his people and the world. It was always humanity cowering in shame or rebelling in their pride and God pursuing, asking the loving, gracious questions and offering himself. And the pinnacle of that, the climactic moment in world history of God extending himself to the world is in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We call what surrounds the work and person of Jesus the gospel. Christianity has used that term for a long time because the Bible gives us that word. Gospel literally means good news. Generally, it just means an announcement, a great announcement. I have a great announcement to make, the Bible declares, about God's love of the world and the provision he has offered through Jesus Christ. And Easter tells a part of that story. In fact, if I were going to summarize the gospel, and I even put it in your notes, I would say that there are five parts. Remember I talked about God entering in slowly, even from the beginning of the story? Well, that climax is in what's called the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Where in Jesus, God comes to a sinful and needy world. See, we, we've, been, we've been separated from God. We, we've been banned from his holy presence because of our broken condition and our sinful state. And so God enters in, took on the sinful state of our world and our lives. But more than that, while we failed to live the life that would honor God, Jesus lived the perfect life 
Jesus lived the obedient life we failed to live before God. So not only did Jesus extend himself and cross the separation between us and God, but he took upon himself our sin and yet never succumbed to it. He not only lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death. Jesus died the atoning death that paid the penalty for our sins. He bridged the separation. He embraced our sinful state. And by his death, gave us salvation. Again, just two days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. The the sacrificial death of Christ for us. He lived a life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved. That's grace and mercy. And then there's Easter. Three days after his sacrificial death, Jesus rose from the dead. It's the resurrection. That's what we celebrate today. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus defeated the effects of sin and death and initiated the new creation. Vera said it so well that God created a very good world, and while we messed that up and it went a different direction, God would always finish his creation project. He would always accomplish what he was going to do. There's a, there's a surety and assurance that the resurrection guarantees that life will come forth out of death. You can just imagine that doctor in room 204 tasting assurance, confidence, hope, because this family knew Easter. Finally, the ascension after finishing his ministry that began with the incarnation, the perfect life, a sacrificial death, the resurrection that we celebrate today. Finally, in about a month, month after his resurrection, Jesus ascended, and therefore he is now reigning. He is ministering to us by his spirit, and he will one day perfect all things. He is king who is reigning, and will one day come back and reign over all creation, completing what he started. Declaring his supremacy, which we acknowledge now by our allegiance to King Jesus. The world may not acknowledge him, but we know full well who's in charge. That's the summary of the gospel. And a person believes the gospel or becomes a Christian by trusting in Jesus' work on their behalf. It's not just knowing about this good news, this announcement. It's not just comprehending the facts that I just shared with you, but trusting in it with your own life. Just as it's not just knowing about airplanes and having some logical understanding that they fly, but actually getting on the plane and taking a seat. It's entrusting yourself. It's saying, Jesus, I want to give you the life that I've lived imperfectly, and I receive by your grace the fullness of life that you offer me. In this sense, then, the gospel, and even therefore Easter, is both universal and personal. That text that Katie read, that's in your notes for you, look at that text, those first few verses, verses 18 to 22, describe how the gospel message is universal. It talks about the whole world. Listen to the apostle Paul here in Romans 8, and listen to how what he says speaks into our broken world today. 
Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't read past that without letting that sit a bit in our context. Imagine your Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now needing to read verse 18. Imagine a family in room 204 needing to read verse 18. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing what God will ultimately bring to fruition. And notice how verse 19 continues and explains this, the universal issue at stake, the universal brokenness that we all see and taste in our world. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for what God is going to do through Christ and his people. For the creation was subjected, verse 22, futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And listen to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, the whole world, everything that we see and live in today has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Notice how the gospel explains the universal reality in our world of suffering and brokenness. But it also speaks into what God promises to do. With purpose, God created his world. In love, God is redeeming his world. And with supremacy, God will perfect his world. That's the language of hope. That's the announcement of the gospel. That's the song we sing at Easter. But it's not just universal. It's not just cosmic in scope. It's also personal. Look at verse 23. I love the transition Paul makes. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Now put your name in there. Now put room 204 at the UCLA hospital. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. That, that, that statement where Paul's saying, you already have the beginning of God's work in you, Christians. It's just not yet finalized. The story's not yet finished. That's what he means when he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been reconciled with God through Christ, you have the Spirit in you that gives you a peace, that gives you a, a surety, an assurance. Even though you still ache, again, picture room 204. Picture the crying of a mom who wanted to do something for a little girl and there was nothing she could do. Or a dad that felt helpless or an older brother who didn't quite understand and just saw mom crying and dad frustrated. Doctors in tubes and an uncomfortable little girl in the bed who you would just want to be playing. But we ourselves, again, look at verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And look at how Paul ends. 
for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, think of room 204. Father, what are you going to do with my little girl? The dad may have prayed. How much longer does she have to suffer? What are you going to do with this situation? We know you're God and King. We, we, we know that what you do is perfect and true. We know that you overcome evil with good, yet we are longing. Like the rest of the biblical story and all the people we see or don't even know around the world or are dealing with the brokenness of this creation, we groan inwardly because we want this to be over. Come, Lord Jesus, redeem the body of my little girl. Might have been many a prayers in room 204. So the gospel is not only universal, it's personal. It's not only about the whole world and all of creation, as the first half of Romans 8, 18 to 25 show. It's also individual, not just the world as a whole, not just all of Ukraine, not even just room 204, but you as well. That with purpose, God has created every person. In love, God is redeeming his people. And with supremacy, God will perfect his people. Here's the problem. It's in his timing. But if we hope, how's the text end? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now there's room 204. At the funeral for this young lady, Kaylee was her name. She wasn't expected to live till three. She died at 13. Her older brother was about 17 years old. I hadn't heard any of this story, any of this context, until that doctor at the funeral shared as part of the eulogy, told his testimony. And he ended with an interesting detail that was striking to me. He said, near her death, as they were in the hospital, regularly in contact with the parents, he'd been working with this family now for over a decade. He'd seen... Kaylee's heart starting to fail more and more and her body coming near its end. And they are back in the hospital and one of the new nurses on this particular floor went into the room to care for this family. She had not met them yet. And again, like the doctor's first exposure, he saw all the brokenness in all the rooms and then he walks into this family's room and he sees hope. And she, she described to the doctor later that she saw this older brother now 17, laying next to his sister. Sound familiar with interlocking fingers as they lay in bed? And the brother said, can we sing mom and dad? Kaylee's getting tired. And so this beautiful family sings this song, songs of hope and of the gospel and the Christian faith as 13-year-old Kaylee's eyes slowly close because she's tired. And this nurse is overrun with emotion she finishes her duty and she walks down to a lounge on that floor and puts her head on the table and another nurse comes up and she's crying and the nurse says, what's wrong? And you know what's going on in room 204? In the corner was that doctor. 
in, his perfect pro- in God's perfect providence, he was getting a cup of coffee. He decided to grab two. And he walks up and he sits at the table and he puts the coffee down next to this nurse. And he says, you were in room 204? What'd you see? She goes, I can't explain it. And he sits down and he says, let me explain it to you. And he shared with her the gospel. He shared with her the Easter story. He shared with her the announcement, not only of what God is doing in the world, in a broken and fallen world, but he shared what God is doing personally in that family and what God invites her to experience as well. And all of that story was told at a funeral. And I remember sitting in that church thinking of this family that just lost their little girl. And thinking about that doctor who's only there now because of an Easter hope. And I think about true hope and the power of Christianity because it's true. So as you and I live in a broken and fallen world, we taste daily the rebellion and separation from God that is evident as wars rage, as greed and pride dominate the landscape of our country and all others. We know the story. We know how it one day will end. But it's more than just this universal story. It's personal. But the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, who has been pursuing his creation from the beginning, who will complete it to perfection, is also now pursuing you. He invites you to have a share in the life that he lived to perfection, to give to him the death that you deserve, and he shares with you the abundance of his goodness and his grace. Then you can taste what existed in room 204, assurance and supremacy of a Savior and a Lord, even, hear this, even with inward groaning and longing for the newness of creation. That's the Easter story. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Just as we finish thinking through how Easter is both universal and personal, Reflect on that personal part with me for a moment. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're sitting here, may may the word of God and the truth of what Easter means encourage you, strengthen you, remind you of the certainty and supremacy of God and the salvation that you have. May it make you, when we we sing in a few minutes, may it make you sing with, with confidence and boldness and gratitude to a God who's redeemed you graciously as you celebrate with your brothers and sisters this Easter morning. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never tasted what existed in room 204, then the gospel message itself is an invitation. The story I just told is an invitation to be your testimony, that you would not just understand the facts of Jesus' life and death, but you would trust them yourself. You would admit before God of your sinful condition 
you would ask Jesus to share the life only he can give you with you. And you would submit to his lordship over your life. And if that's something that you want to do, that's something you could pray right now, even as we're singing, that is something you can talk to somebody with with whom you came to church this morning, you could come up and talk to me after the service, or you could contact our church at any time. Because the same God, here's the beauty of this, the same God that pursued Adam and Eve in the garden, the same God that pursued a doctor at a UCLA hospital, the same God that pursued a family with a sick daughter in room 204 is the same God who pursues you now. And that's the announcement of Easter. Father, as we close our time in your word this morning, on this Easter morning, a day of celebration, would you open calloused eyes and hardened hearts to the invitation that God gives to them? Would you help them to trust in the one who is the most trustworthy? who sacrificed for them and made them for himself. And Father, for those of us who already have this hope and this faith, may you strengthen us in it as we deal with the brokenness of our world and the condition of sin in which we exist. And Father, we pray with assurance and confidence you will come back quickly and redeem all creation, ourselves included. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who not just died the death that we deserved, but resurrected 2,000 years ago this morning to give us a share in his life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.